All right, welcome to another episode of Keo Conversations. My name is Mark Champagne, and I am here to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game, personally and professionally. Today I'm chatting with Kimberly, who is a birth doula, sexological body worker, somatic experiencing practitioner, postpartum care advocate, and single mom. She is an incredibly passionate individual for the wonderful work she's doing in this world. It's really an honor to have someone like this on the show. She also has an awesome pack in Keo titled Discover Your Mother Code. So for any new moms, new moms-to-be, people that want to become moms, this is a great, great pack with awesome reflective um, prompts to help through that journey. So enjoy the pack, enjoy the conversation, and thanks for being a part of the journey. If you are enjoying these conversations, please do give us a little love wherever you're listening. Stars, reviews, whatever you've got, thumbs up. It really does help. Lastly, these conversations, the whole podcast is really all brought to you by Keo, which is our daily mental fitness app. All of these incredible guests end up in-app to help you with your daily reflection. All you have to do is search KYO in the Apple App Store and it will pop up. Thank you so much. And as always, have the absolute best day yet. So who are you? I am Kimberly Johnson. I am the author of The Fourth Trimester. I'm a single mom to one amazing 11-year-old girl. And I am an advocate for, for lack of a better word, embodiment, because I feel embodiment is a bit of a redundant word, uh, but for possibilities of more erotic expression, sexual expression, self-expression. And I'm kind of tethered to a new reality that's outside of this binary viewpoint that at least in the U.S. here, we're kind of stuck in right now is like, if you believe this, then you are against this person. And if you believe this, you're against this person. And it's kind of happening on the personal level, but it's also happening on a political level. So I'm really a stand for a new possibility there. Oh, so well said. I love that. Um, I I definitely, and we, we, we just talked about this before hitting record, but I feel, you know, just having gone through your book and everyone listening, we, we also have a, a pack with Kimberly and in Keel on Mother Code that I'm sure we'll, we'll get to. But there's just, you know, and just listening to other podcasts with you, there's, there's this beautiful, uh, and I don't know if I'm using the right words, but rawness or kind of radical way of, of communicating that you use to, or maybe it's just authentic is the way to, to really phrase it up. But that, that you communicate this just the topics that you're you're working around. I'm curious, like, has that always been a part of your communication style? Is this something that comes natural to you? Because I'm, you know, as we get into this podcast, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll get in a little deeper to your work, and you know, they're touchy subjects, right? In some capacity. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I think I have always been a bit of a straight shooter. Yeah, I'm not I'm not one to sort of avoid the elephant in the room. Yeah. It's a little tougher when it comes to interpersonal conversations, but when it comes to naming what I see and making connections between things, I think 
healing our own shame matrix is the first step. And then, then it doesn't even, it's just, it's not a hard road to bridge. Cause I don't even, to me, it's just normal. I'm not really thinking about like, I don't know how other people are perceiving things. So it's just sort of me speaking from my own experience. Yeah, no, that's true. Well, I mean, and that's probably a good observation from myself, someone coming from the outside of, of a lot of this work, right? It's not like a in your face type thing, but it's, oh, interesting. Okay. That's never thought about in that perspective. So mm-hmm. I, I bring it up as a good thing. It's, um, it, it's really inspiring because I think it really pushes your, your work on, on like, again, an authentic level. So how did you, just to, to lay a little bit of ground on, on what we're, we're chatting about, like, why don't you share a little bit about your story and, and how you got to the, the place you're at with um, this incredible your work you're doing with women primarily, but I'd, I'd say also men, right? Mm-hmm. Well, one of my first sexual experiences was assault. And so I, it really changed my worldview. It changed how my, my sense of if the world was a safe place or not. And it also set me on my spiritual path. So that's out of that came a desire to understand kind of yoga and Eastern religion. And I wasn't religious before that and I'm not religious now, but I just, I needed an understanding in a broader worldview. So that really set me on the path towards yoga and I became a yoga teacher and then I became a structural integration practitioner, which is a kind of body work that works on connective tissue. And I spent about 10 years practicing a lot of yoga, teaching a lot of yoga, working on a lot of bodies. And I was a dancer before that. So I already had a lot of experience working with bodies and um, looking at bodies. And then I had a baby. And when I, I prepared for the birth and I had always wanted a home birth and I had most of what I wanted in my birth scenario. And I just came out of it with an injury. And I was really surprised because I just didn't know anything about the transition to motherhood. I was the oldest in my family, the oldest of all my cousins. I babysat a lot. And so I just didn't really know that there was anything special about the postpartum period. So I hadn't prepared for it at all. Hmm. And then on top of that, I had an injury. So I was trying to figure out what was going on. Why was my back hurting all the time? Why couldn't I sit down and stand up easily? Why was, why were my basic bodily functions not working right? And I recognized that, you know, when I searched for help in terms of starting with Google, well, starting with my midwives actually, and then moving on to Google, that there was really no information on anything postpartum except for postpartum depression. And I was feeling kind of depressed, but I knew that it wasn't a mental health problem. I knew that I was in a very specific archetypal rite of passage. I I could feel that, but I could also feel that I just had none of what I would actually need to thrive. And so in my own process of healing, I was told I needed a full surgical pelvic floor reconstruction, uh, which I was did not want at all. I went searching for other places that might know something more than what I was taught in my own culture about what women need after they give birth. And that led me to learn about different cultures and what just intuitively made sense for myself. And then I was led to sexological bodywork and somatic experiencing trauma resolution therapy. And those were the two things that helped me the most in putting myself back together. So then I began to offer that work 
And I've spent the last, I moved from Brazil to the US four and a half years ago. And I've spent those four and a half years as an advocate for holistic care and also as a care provider. So I've given about six or 700 one-on-one hands-on hands-in trauma tracking sessions for people to heal from birth and to uh, heal from sexual boundary violations. Hmm. And then during that time, I wrote my book, which is, it's just all the information that I wish that I would have had when I was a new mom so that I would have been better prepared to move through that passage in a, in a smoother way. Sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I'm curious, having moved, let's say, so you said four years ago, like, especially in the last couple of years, there's definitely a lot of conversation, right? Between men and women and um, identity. And like, there's just so much going on. Did you, when you moved four years ago, like, what was your, was that a shock coming from where for you were coming from Brazil, correct? So is it, is it worse? Is it the same? Like, how did you process that move? Well, the move for me Although there was a lot of culture shock coming in this direction, even though I was technically coming home, a lot of it was seeing how that was for my daughter because it was just such a profoundly difficult change for her. And it was actually her, she initiated the move. She wanted to live closer to my parents. But of course, you know, she was seven, so she didn't know exactly what that would mean. And the way that she processed it, her two main She's a very intuitive, insightful person. And the two main things that she was really stuck on, one of them was she would say, I don't understand it here. Everything is perfect, perfect, on time, perfect. And I don't know how to be this way. Wow. And that was really profound because in Brazil, there's a whole other sense of time. Brazilians, and especially from Rio, are notoriously late. And they're social commitments are different. So it's really about desire. So if you say like Friday, I'm going to go to a dinner party and Friday shows up and you don't want to go, people just won't show up. (laughs) And you just kind of know, well, then at least the people who show up are ones who really want to be there instead of like our North American way, which is like what you said you would. And it's probably more relaxed on the West Coast, but you know, it's like, it would be super rude to say yes to something and then just no show. You know, I mean, it's still a little rude in Brazil too, but it's, it's different. And she just picked up on this thing that there's a right way to do everything and there's a right way to be. And you have to, you know, in, and in her little system that just felt like I'm supposed to be perfect all the time. And I don't know how to do that. That's so interesting. And the other shadow piece of our culture that she, you know, because the positive side of that is like, we get shit done in North America. And like, you know, like my book is getting translated into Portuguese and it's been translated into Portuguese from Portugal and Brazilian Portuguese, the Portuguese from Portugal, it was done in May and the, and it's already published and out and I have copies, the Brazilian Portuguese, it's still not done being translated. It hasn't even gone to printing yet and they've had it for over a year. So, you know, on the other side of perfection is like efficiency and um, loyalty and some things like that. But the shadow side is that feeling of being in a box and having it be hard to be seen outside of your box. Yeah. But interesting that she noticed that, right? Like that, like, did you, did you, did you pick up on any of that having lived in, in Brazil that a number of years? Oh, sure. I mean, sure. I felt, felt it. And that's why I love living there because 
And also when you live in a culture as a foreigner, it's different, right? Like I have almost extra permission to be weird and uninhibited because you're just a (laughs) foreigner anyway. So it's not like you're, I don't have to abide by my own country's norms and I don't have to abide by their norms. So there's an added level of permission. But the other thing that she noticed, which was very obvious to me as well, was when she used to go to school in Brazil, she would run up to her teacher and kind of jump on her teacher and give her teacher a hug. And then all of the kids would kind of fall into a puppy pile. And it was touch is just a totally organic part of Brazilian culture and people touch each other all the time. And you don't have to apologize every time you touch someone. And, you know, shadow side of that is like you get body checked in the subway, but the (laughs) upside of it is there's just a lot more comfort with it. So when she came here, she kissed a friend of hers on the forearm at school and her friend yanked her arm away and said, germs, you're not allowed to do that. That's against the rules. And she just was constantly feeling rejected because her one of her languages of communication is touch. And it was just always being, you know, pushed away. And so she would say to me, uh, she would say it in Portuguese at that time, esses pessoas não sabem como amar. These people don't know how to love. And so it was just really hard for her to... And, you know, as a parent, it was kind of like, on the one hand, I agree with her. And on the other hand, I have to teach her that people here do love. They just do it differently. But I I prefer the kind of love that she prefers. So it's also, yeah. it was hard for me. Mm-hmm. Now I find myself shaking people's hands and I'm just like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I don't shake hands. Like, what? Yeah. But I've been Americanized again. And I was worried about that when I moved back. I was like, I want to keep my Brazilianness, but it's just how it works over time when you're in an environment. It's fascinating, really fast. We, we should have had your daughter on the show at the same time. <laughs> totally. She would love that. She's a Leo. She would be like, but but if you had her on the show, you wouldn't hear much from me. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. To say. That's so funny. So do you think like, I mean, let, let's, let's be honest, there's so much going on right now in, in North America. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. worldwide, but obviously we're hearing a lot about it in, in North America. Like how much do you think is attributed to this notion of to your to like how your daughter put it like how we love here because I that's really fascinating to me um, the the difference especially what sh- what you guys picked up on coming back right mm-hmm. so when you're saying everything that's going on are you referring to me too or the Supreme Court or our president or or what <laughs> yeah I guess or? there's a few things no yeah. I think I think more so me too and just you know, all the, all the conversation we're having around boundaries yes. and relationships between men and women. And uh, frankly, I guess ourselves as well at the same time. Yeah. So this is really what my next body of work is all about. And it's what my online course, Activate Your Inner Jaguar is about. And it's really where I spend most of my time is trying to elaborate this conversation a little bit. Because what really troubles me, like I mentioned earlier, is just, you know, let's take the Supreme Court hearings, for instance. Uh, all of a sudden it became, so there. So any any big event like that is going to become a projectathon, right? We're just going to project yeah. our own personal experiences onto, onto an icon or, and, you know, I had a powerful conversation with my daughter where I said to her, I just want you to know, I don't think that Dr. Ford is a hero. 
And she just kind of looked at me and she's like, okay. And I said, because what happens when you have a hero? And she goes, you have to have a villain. And I said, yeah, exactly. So the way that these public dialogues are getting constructed for, with, you know, freeze frame media imagery and the he said, she said, calling in a bunch of people that make no difference. I mean, let's get it straight. Any of us can do things that may seem out of character. So it doesn't matter how many people like you and what a great friend you've been or an employer that you've been. You can still do things that are, you know, you can still cross a line. And that's, that's what I've been fascinated to see is that um, some of the past rhetoric about sexual abuse has been constructed like there's this phrase kind of once a predator, always a predator. Or if someone quote unquote rapes, they're going to do it again. But all these phrases are just getting thrown around. Like the fact that Kavanaugh would be called a rapist. He in what she described is being categorized as a sexual assault, but there's nothing inherently sexual about what she described. Yeah. Although if she's calling it a sexual assault, okay, then we can say, we know he probably just does not even remember that night because it doesn't register as significant, hasn't registered as significant in his own life, which doesn't mean that it happened. It didn't happen. It just means that he doesn't remember it happening. And Additionally, it doesn't mean that he's a predator in every part of his life because he was in the predator role at that time. Yeah. It's also arguably totally inappropriate for this to be play out, played out on a public stage, right? Like it, because somebody, you know, the way that he acted afterwards is a completely different question because his, his behavior was um, totally abominable and pathetic when he was being questioned. But that that's actually a separate issue than number one, his politics. And number two, if if what happened that night happened in the way that it was described by her, does that make him unfit to be a Supreme Court justice? Mm -hmm. That's a whole other question, because what I've seen in my personal life in the past month, and of course, you know, I'm known to be someone who works in sexuality and people feel very comfortable talking to me about things that maybe they wouldn't talk to other people about is many men coming to me and saying, I'm freaked out right now. And here's why I'm freaked out. I'm remembering things that I didn't remember before. Yeah. And I am questioning myself. And here's something that happened. What do you think about that? Hmm. And I think that we do not allow for the gray area which is where most of these things that are now be call, be, being called harassment, assault, rape live. Of course, there's the 5 to 10% that's not a gray area that is perpetration that is um, oftentimes violent. And I know that perpetration doesn't have to include violence. But there's, there's the non-negotiable 10% that's just fucked up, right? Where yeah, people yeah. are like sociopaths or pathological. But then the 90%, like the Aziz Ansari case, like what most of us are reviewing in our pasts is like questionable. Like we're questioning ourselves. Well, what was that dynamic? And why did I say this, but do that? And um, yeah, I didn't feel good about that at the time. And wow, I can't believe that I didn't have any mentorship or anyone that I could go to, to ask about these things. And whoa, like we have no coming of age rite of passage rituals and no wonder like getting wasted is how people are doing rites of passage. So there's just all of these things getting opened up and 
a lot of mixed messages, a lot of, I call them double binds. A, a double bind, an example of that is um, white men, you better sit down and shut the fuck up because you've been talking for too long. You mansplain and um, you're part of the problem. That's like one message. Yeah. And then you flip that on the other side, which is why, where are all the men? Why aren't the, where are the men standing up for us? Where are our brothers standing up for us? And those kind of double binds in our physiology register as a freeze response. And on the parasympathetic side of the nervous system with freeze is resignation. And of course, many of us on all sides of the gender spectrum are experiencing that uh, of like, okay, so I'm not supposed to say anything and I'm supposed to just sit here and listen. But at the same time, when I do that, I'm being told that I'm not doing the right thing. And I think a lot of people feel that even in very casual circumstances, you know, I'm single. So a lot of times when I'm dating, the men will say, you know, yeah, it's really like these days, I don't really know what to do. I don't really know whether to give my phone number, ask for a phone number. Um, everything, everyone's just so on edge all the time. It's just like mass confusion, I find. Yeah, Like on exactly. all fronts. So that is, you know, that is really different than, I think it's been escalating for sure, but it's, yeah. it's really pronounced right now. And some people think it's a pendulation. You know, some people think, well, there was silence for so long. And so it's going to be this kind of pendulation where this, you know, the mass unshaming the stories. And, you know, a lot of people are surprised by the prevalence of gender privilege and race privilege. And, you know, that's hard for me to believe because it's, those are conversations that I've been in for since I was 17. So, you know, Mm -hmm. 27 years or whatever. But I, so people are waking up at different rates and it's certainly important. What matters to me is our nervous systems and is how we're living as we're living. Because, you know, even all this dire talk about climate change and, you know, we've got 10 more years or whatever. It's like, who the fuck cares if we survive, if even the next 10 years are terrible because we're so traumatized and alienating or resigned like it, what difference does it make really you know so i'm i'm a stand for great there's a lot of moral indignation a lot of outrage a lot of people have good reason for that i go through cycles of that every single day working in women's health and the things that i hear that people are told by their doctors and um things that are normalized in sexual relationships. Like it's, it's maddening. But then I always come back to, I believe that most people really care. Not those 10%, but I believe that the rest of the 90% actually care. And mm -hmm. care is foundational. And if we care, we can start to shift things. And we need, we need each other. And the dialogue is pushing everyone farther apart. It's making everyone choose sides. You know, if you, some people are probably listening to this and they're probably really upset that I would say that I don't think Dr. Ford is a hero or that I, then I don't hashtag believe survivors. Um, I've been called a neoconservative. I've been told that I'm an enemy to women um, because I am saying that I don't believe in this race to the ultimate victim position. And I don't believe, I don't believe that we can, uh, matriarchy is not the answer. 
It's like, so we're going to recreate patriarchy, but just change, we're going to change the roles, but just have different, you know, same roles, different people playing the parts that, that doesn't make sense to me. And I don't feel like that's what is called for. So, uh, I think we're at a tipping point that has a lot of potential, but we've got to really work with our own systems because if we're at such a high level of indignation, outreach, outrage, helplessness, stuckness i mean it's not helping our personal lives yeah how do we evolve from that yeah right and how do we have more pleasure and mutually respectful sex and you know elaborated erotic identities at the same time and how would that influence our public discourse because what i hear of is women being like i'm so pissed at the patriarchy i'm i'm pushing my husband away but i don't know how to do it any differently Interesting. Well, thank you. Um, there, you know, there aren't any hard stands on, on, on this podcast from my <laughs> side. I just like to have the conversation. So I appreciate your, uh, your openness to, well, I mean, you're speaking from, from your heart, right? So thank you for that. Uh, I would like to, and it, it does, it does relate obviously to a lot of the, the work you're doing, but I, I would love to dive into for you, what it means, like what mother code means to you. And I don't know if there, you're probably seeing a lot of parallels on just even everything we just talked about and a lot of the work you're doing day to day and how to, you know, how to evolve through that or heal, I guess is the right way to, to, to term it. Well, mother code to me means discovering for each woman, what it means to her to be a mother. So how do we sift through all of our personal scripts, our cultural scripts, our family scripts to really feel into what is right for us? Hmm. And each person's code is going to be different because each of us has a very unique mission and a very unique expression of our soul. So that's intricately connected to how we would mother and how we would shepherd another soul. Interesting. Well, and, and obviously that links back to any past experiences. And I know you talk a lot about, you know, your relationship with um, your mother as well as your grandmother and, and the influences that has. I mean, there's a lot in in the pack that you've graciously provided for us on the Keo side, mm. which, you know, a lot of that comes from from your your book, The Fourth Trimester. So Well, I think that a lot of people think about becoming a mother. And because we live in a pretty consumerist culture, preparing means, you know, getting the baby room ready and what kind of gear do you absolutely need? And I wasn't prepared for this. I don't want to call it Pandora's box because I think that's a little dramatic, but I just wasn't prepared for that stirring of mother lineage. I didn't realize that I would be reviewing my relationship to my mom and my grandmother review that my womanhood would be so palpable. You know, my first, one of my first things I said after I finally gave birth to my daughter, when my mom came in, she came like 45 minutes later. I first, I said, you lied to me because I felt like she wasn't honest about how, what an insane process giving birth is. But then I said, this is, I was like, that's bullshit. Everything I've been told about equality is bullshit. We men and women have nothing in common. 
And she just kind of looked at me. And, and from where I was at that moment, you know, just having birthed a baby out of my body, it was really this realization that all of our intellectualism about equal gender roles and I can do anything a man can do and I can do it better. It was all just false comparison that had no, like it just at that point where I was, was irrelevant. And again, it's very confronting for most people, but especially women to hear that. But I'm really, I'm really principally interested in our physiology and our biology and how much more that determines our behavior than our morals and our intellectual ideas. So at that moment, I was having a visceral experience. Yeah. I was just going to ask this. What do you, what do you mean by that? That's a really interesting statement. Just the, 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 the link. Yeah. We tend to come from a top down culture. So we think that you know, if I have a problem, then you think about it and you write pros and cons and you solve it, you know, or you yeah. maybe you ask someone to talk it through with you or you go to therapy. We don't tend to think that our body would be a locus of intelligence that could actually even possibly be more intelligent than our brain. Yeah. I mean, not even possibly like our heart beats itself. We don't tell it to beat our brain, you know, our thinking mind doesn't tell it to beat. Think of all the incredible things that are happening in our body, and if we were in charge of it, we'd be dead long ago, right? Like, how are we going to so remember to eat our heart and yeah, breathe in and function. out? And <laughs> yeah, like we're not we're not in charge. So, what I mean is that many women face a lot of disillusionment when they become new moms, especially of my generation, because you know. The generations before, let's say two generations before, most of our grandmothers weren't thinking about careers. Not everybody, but most of our grandmothers were housewives and mothers. And so there wasn't a lot of inner tension about that. There was probably, you know, nowadays the whole discourse about motherhood is how hard it is. But has motherhood gotten harder? Or is it just that we're doing it in addition to all of the other roles that we're doing? And so it seems so hard. Hmm. And maybe the way that we're doing it or is and the weight that we're putting on it certainly is much different because before there people weren't having like, should I, shouldn't I, should I wait? Should, you know, it was just like, you're just going to, you know, you're going to do it. Yeah. You do it young in life. You probably having less physical complications because you're doing it earlier, all that stuff. So now a lot of my clients, I'm a birth doula and I, a lot of my clients, what they're going through postpartum, part of the challenge is that they are realizing that their framework about gender equality is simply incorrect. And some of them have even been resentful, resentful like that they're more attuned to their baby than their partner is. But it's like, well, the person who birthed the baby should be more attuned. Yeah, It came out of their body. That's biologically functional and adaptive. It's not a problem, but it's a problem when then you put a moral thing of like, why is this person so tuned out, you know, I don't want to be the one that's translating all this news. And it's interesting to me because a lot of these women are also, their partners are the breadwinners. So it's not like they're not also in a role division, right? And so as a single mom, I think it makes me extra irritated because I'm always like, dude, you have a man at home that wants to have sex with you all the time. Like that's fucking amazing. Or at least some of the time, if not all the time. And you've got somebody that's like bringing home a paycheck. 
like two incredible assets of having a partner. And women are like, oh, he just doesn't change the diaper right. And he's, you know, and they, women just feel this permission to express how burdened they feel, I guess, because of all the generations of silencing, they finally can say it. And so I feel it's a little bit overboard. It's like, okay, yeah, but you, I know it's hard to stay at home and take care of a baby. It's really hard. I've done it. Um, And it's isolating. And there's a lot of ways our culture doesn't support people to do that. And, you know, in Canada is better than here. At least you guys have some paid leave. And, um, but it's also like, okay, let's put this in perspective. Like there's a reason why you are breastfeeding and, and some women feel like really put upon, like, why should they have to do that? So it's interesting. It's interesting. It's that's where it's not that I don't think that like women shouldn't be in the workplace or anything. Of course not. But it's, we're at a phase in feminism as well. That's like, okay, so we've broken the glass ceiling, a lot of it, not all of it. I know that. Um, but you know, there's more Harvard law 50, 50 now, um, more women in higher education than men. And women are having more health problems than ever, way more than men are having more autoimmune disorders, more fertility issues. And those things are related. It's really like, as I'm just listening to you. I'm, I'm taking it all in because as a, as a new dad myself with our guys, our little guys, two and a half, like if I, if I had to summarize a lot of what was just said, I, I feel like we're male and female kind of just thrown in to this massive, almost like life-changing experience, right? Of, of having a baby. And like, I remember on my side too, like just feeling completely useless and not knowing, like no one told me like some of that stuff was going to come up and everything for, for all the reasons you just mentioned, right? Like I did not give physical birth to the baby. You know, my, my wife was breastfeeding and it's like, what do you, what do you do type thing? Right. Or how can I be there? It it was challenging. And you know, it really wasn't until the point where like now he's two and a half and it, it, it's so different, obviously, like you can play and like, I feel like that's when, and again, I'm not, I'm generalizing here, but that's when dads really come in and feel more comfortable in, in the whole like process or scene of things. Right. But we don't talk or we don't reflect or prepare or think or any of that beforehand. Um, at least in my experience, and, and, and again, I'm generalizing, but it seems like from what what you're you're discussing, it, it you know that's that's the case, right? Mm-hmm. Why don't we jump into? I'd just like to talk a little bit about your focus on some of your like f- for young women, because there's a lot, especially with with the people that are coming through Keo on the app side, and I imagine a lot of people listening are kind of fall under that demographic of just kind of wrapping up school about to jump into like the first job, potentially getting married. Uh, even though I know that's kind of, you know, becoming, um, like pushed off farther and farther, I guess you can say, and then same with, with kids and whatnot, but like any, any advice on for, for women of, of in that place in their life on, on these topics, just to even get some reflection going. And then I'd love both to dive into reflective practices. So I'm not quite clear on the question as about what young women, how they navigate relationship or. 
Yeah, I guess that's a bit of a loaded question for it. I apologize for that. No, that's okay. Um, no, I just am not quite sure what you mean. I mean, I, I guess like th- what I see, and and you can almost put this on any category. Like we're 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 stuck in a bit of an autopilot mode, just kind of going through life, right? Mm-hmm. And for for young women at, in that particular stage, before just jumping into other, these other big, you know, let's let's call them maybe like very serious relationships or thinking about kids. Mm-hmm. Like, is there anything that, you know, th- that they can do and, and men too, frankly, that, you know, just to maybe step back a bit and, and do a bit of reflection? Yeah. So for me, it all goes back to your our biology and our physiology and really understanding our own systems from the inside out. Hmm. So it's not just enough to understand how the nervous system works, but it's about understanding how our particular nervous system works. So we know that under threat, one response is to engage the threat, to fight the threat or move towards it. One response is to move away from it and escape. And then another response is a freeze response or immobility or even general confusion And then that escalates to collapse or fainting or evacuation of your bowels or whatever. But, you know, most of our interactions are happening at the lower level of those things. And we have a lot of conditioning. You know, people are so confused right now about things like flirtation because flirtation, it can be fun. But how do you know when it's okay to do that? And how do you know that you wouldn't be scaring someone instead of alluring someone. So we have to get really clear with our own body language, our facial expressions, and then the content of what we're saying. And this is across gender lines because, you know, I went out to a bar like, well, I really went to go see some music, but it was at a bar and I hadn't been in a really big group that had lots and lots of men for a while. And I recognized how uncomfortable it was for me because number one, most people were drinking. So their sense of their body space is really different. And like, you know, people are kind of spilling drinks on me and whatever. And then also how much defending of my personal space that I had to do because there was like a guy that kept like basically trying to rub his butt against mine. um, But not just be like, not actually make eye contact with me. And then like, because I'm all about grinding, like if that's, if that's the rules of the game, right? Like if that's the music we're listening to and like, we're both down for it, like, you know, I'm good for that. But it was like very, it was a taking energy. Like I'm going to see if I can get away with this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that I don't think most people are doing that consciously. I think that it's, if I were, if I, what I chose to do was to leave and to go stand somewhere else. But if I had chosen to actually confront it without shaming, so, and you know, shame is a perfectly fine response for some things and it's, it serves a social function. Some people need to feel shame so that they stop doing something. But if I were to actually just say to him, Hey, you know what? That feels really uncomfortable. Like every time you bump your butt against mine, I'm, I'm just feeling really uncomfortable. He probably would have just sheepishly said he was sorry or it, and it, because I would have been willing to personalize it rather than just decide like this guy's a scumbag 
and like he shouldn't be doing that and to really engage the humanity of it. And I think that that's what's being asked of us. And, you know, women say to that, well, we shouldn't have to do that. And, you know, it's like all on us all the time. But there is actually something in it for us because it's, we we cannot assume, we could, I mean, we could try, but it's just, the natural world is not a safe place. There's always predator and prey. So we're never going to create a utopia where everyone feels safe, but we can create an environment where people feel safe inside themselves. And so therefore, in most situations, that is what will prevail. So we can't, the 10% of just shitty behavior and violence is, is on one side, but the 90% is, it's really about knowing our default patterning. Because when we escalate a sense of threat or danger, we're going to go into our default habit. So if we have a habit, for instance, of like, I notice I do this with my daughter. If she starts to escalate, like she's got this thing about her hair right now, and she just obsesses about her hair in the morning. And it is a really crappy way to start the day because she's like, it's not curly enough. And why does it look like this? And she's, you know, she's, you can tell she's about to cry. And I'm like, oh my God, like your hair's, and, and I would tell her if I thought it looked awful, you know, but it's like, it looks pretty much the same as it looked the day before, but she's just having a hard time with it. Sure. A lot of times what I do is I start first I'm calm, but then she continues. Then I escalate and then I turn away from her and walk away. None of those things are bad in and of themselves, but those are all nervous system behaviors and they're going to trigger a nervous system response in the other person. So we think we can like outsmart people or whatever, like, oh, well, I'll just, you know, say the right thing. I mean, women are notorious. We think if we just say it one more time, the person's going to finally get it. You know, I mean, I think men are just like, (laughs) yeah, like as if I haven't heard you say that before, you know, like women think, oh, well, I didn't say it that way. So I'm just going to say it again. And it's like, it's really behavioral changes or a different, uh, it's not saying something different that usually changes a dynamic. I just love the whole idea of realizing like our default habit. I think that could be, that literally can be applied to really any topic, right? Um, Which, so, so thank you for sharing that. Is your default procrastination or hyperactivation or? Yeah. Is your default breaking connection or is your default staying too long? Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Well, and it's, it's, that's a lot of the work that we're trying to do. And even myself going through all of this personally that I've noticed all of like pick your practice, whether it's journaling, meditation or yoga, or just going for a walk and trying to be more present, like all of these things from, from my experience, just help with that self-awareness. Right. So I'm curious for you, Kimberly, um, cause I want to respect your time. We'll start wrapping up on, on some of your practices. Like what are some of the things that are non-negotiable in your daily life or your weekly life that help, um, personally with your, with your mind and body? Well, as I mentioned, I spend a lot, I spend a lot of my life. I had spent doing deliberate spiritual practice, like separate practice, like, you know, rolling out a yoga mat and practicing for hours a day, that kind of thing. Hmm. And now being a mom, that was really not possible, especially a single mom in the first part of my life. And that was, it was a real reckoning where I 
did not have my kind of survival tools that I had before. And I was freaked out because I was just like, okay, I don't have time to meditate. I'm exhausted. I can't, my body's broken. So I can't do yoga asana practice. So now it's really more of a moment to moment thing. Like I, I do pay attention to my step thing on my phone. That's sort of a new thing for me, but I, I do kind of pay attention and look, okay, because you know, I'm a writer and I, spend a lot of time at the computer. I teach online classes to hundreds of people. I do the marketing for them, you know, so it would be easy for me to have a day go by when I'm really caught up and loving what I'm doing and then be like, Oh, all I've done is walk from my room to my car or something. Yeah. So I prioritize my body and my nervous system. And I ask myself when I have choices that are coming up, like tonight I got invited to go up to LA to be a part of an event. And I, I had to run it through my nervous system because my default is like, say yes. I say yes. Oh, yes. I want to help this person. Yes, I want to do this. Yes, I want to do that. And then afterwards, I'm kind of like, oh my gosh. And then I have to make sacrifices and give up things that would be good for me in order to help other people. So Hmm. I filter it through that question. I filter it through the question, choose with my nervous system. And I see, is this going to be, is this going to increase my overall, like, level of health or is this going to decrease it? And I really choose, you know, and I'm, I'm 44. So I have a lot of practice of knowing what it's like to override my system, but now I have a pretty fine tuned radar and I allow myself to change my mind. So if I, you know, said that, yes, but then the day comes and I really feel like that's going to put me over the edge, then I just say, you know, I'm really sorry, but I need to respect my body right now and I need to stay in. So, you know, I try to get in a lot of movement every day. For me, time with friends is really important. I'm a social person and I, as a single parent, I really need the company of other adults. And uh, so I prioritize that. And then a, a lot of it for me is about what I call soul work. So when I'm in alignment with my soul work, then in general, I have a pretty high platform of okayness. But like yesterday, I was really bent out of shape. I was pissed off the whole day, basically, because hmm. I started out the day receiving an email, a, a text message from a friend that it just hurt my feelings. And so it made me pissed off. And then I had to do this uh, and had, I know is like, that's a problematic linguistic way to think about things. But it was like, basically I had a commitment that kind of got dumped on me and there was really no way out of it. So I had to do it. And I did it begrudgingly because I wanted to just get it over with, but it was taking away from flow. I was in with the overview part of my proposal for my book. And that is my soul work. That is it's it's not just a marketing thing like for me bringing this next book into the world is what i'm on this earth to do so when other things start to encroach on that and i feel like i can't do that that decreases my life energy so for me it's less about the things that i'm doing to manage myself which i consider like stage 2 interventions and it's more about how do i return to the natural oscillatory rhythm that's already home base in my system. And I can, I can tell easily when I kind of veer off course, but that takes a long time to get there. You know, I, I, 
I am the client of somatic experiencing and I've received hundreds and hundreds of sessions as well as given a lot of sessions. So yeah, you put the work in. <laughs> yeah. What would you say? Cause I, I, I was just really exposed to that this year, actually through Dan from Everyman, which, which is our mutual connection mm-hmm. up until then I was probably like, the majority of the people listening or a good chunk of the population really kind of stuck up in my mind thinking that, you know, I was developing some sort of control, but never really going to that, okay, out of the mind and like, where do I feel that stress or that happiness or anger, like where in my body and, and really mm-hmm. going through that. Yeah. Learning sensation language. Yeah. And it, it's just, it sounds so simplistic, but it's, it's so profound. powerful. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's step one is learning how to perceive sensation and communicate sensation. So in typical therapy, people say, they talk about your emotions, right? Like, yeah. And that's part of the therapeutic process. But the next step is sensation. What are you noticing in your body as you say that? And does that feel good or does that feel bad? And what feels good about it? And just beginning to notice, you know, if you say to most people, what do you notice in your body? They go straight to something that like my neck hurts or my back's jacked or whatever. But then is like, is there anything in your body that feels good? Mm-hmm. And then that might have to, okay, there's nothing that feels good, but is there anything that feels less bad? And just really creating a level of awareness with sensation And then beginning to communicate with sensation. So instead of saying to your wife, you know, that pisses me off or you piss me off when you do that, like the next step step would be, I feel angry. And then the next step, really the most sort of skillful is I notice when you say that I I start to contract and move away from you and heat rises in my face. Hmm. Wow. It has a level of truth and non-labeling that allows for the other person to then state their sensation. Yeah. And then you're really in territory where things can shift. We uh, are going to have to have a part two to that, to this, because okay. I feel like that could be a whole podcast on it on its own. That would be incredibly totally. valuable to have that conversation. Um but like I said, I want to respect your time. So the last question or second last is really to grab your prompts. And again, there's there's a ton of really awesome questions that everyone can take a look at from Mother Code from, from Kimberly. Yeah. Um, but for you personally, um, in kind of your day to day or during big life changing events, are there three questions that at least right now in your life are circulating that you'd like to leave with everyone listening? Hmm. And this is just to help people, right, with their own um, reflection. Right. I think that I'm, I think we talked about this before too, like my whole practice was self-inquiry and asking a deeper and deeper question and the question, who am I? Yeah. And that's funny. It's how you started the question, but it's like even underneath our nervous system, who's the you that can notice your nervous system? But that kind of a question is actually meant to halt mental activity rather than to stimulate it in general. Hmm. So it's not exactly a journaling question. It's more, it's a, it's a deeper question of, of who is the one who's feeling the feelings? Who is the one that is sensing the senses? Uh, Interesting. And that, that's a, a core thread throughout my whole life. 
But I would say that, you know, I love Spinoza and I think it's so simple, but it's like, what are, he calls everything bodies, even if it's like a glass of water, but you know, what are the bodies that I want to move towards and what are the bodies that I want to move away from? And then the next thing would be, does this body enliven me or deaden me? Hmm. And it's going to be different for each person, but it's, it's the notion that we can hone ourselves so that we don't have to have all these prescriptions of, you know, this diet, that diet, this works, that doesn't work. It's like, yeah, maybe it works for a little while and then maybe it's time to shift a little bit and it's okay. We don't have to follow someone else's rules or program that our own blueprint has its magnetism and that we can trust that magnetism in a lot of ways. Because even if say your vice is sugar um, and you love chocolate, I don't know anyone. But it's like, it comes to a point where you have an underlying sense of safety, stability, that you could look at the chocolate and it could be like, yeah, I don't think that's going to, like, I don't think that's going to do it, you know? And then there'd be another time that's like, oh, that's totally going to do it. And then there's a time when you're like, that's not going to do it, but I'm fucking eating it anyway, right? So they're all human expressions and there's nothing wrong with any of them. But it's like, can we develop that sense of self-awareness about what really is bringing us to life? Because that's, that's why we're here. You know, that's, my friend was getting all catastrophic last night about, you know, the world's coming to an end and are we going to survive it? And I said, you know what, who cares? Who cares if we're going to survive it, if we're miserable in the meantime? Because honestly, a lot of the people I'm around, they're just hanging on by their fingernails. Mm-hmm you know, going around in the hamster wheel. It's like, who, I mean, who cares if, if everything goes on 10 years from now, if, if we haven't woken up before then. So like, let's wake up now. And then actually maybe we'll solve some of these problems. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end. And, you know, a virtual cheers to waking up now. And thank you so much mm. for your time and your insight and the years of wisdom in, in this this field of work that you're in and and just sharing perspectives and being vulnerable and open and true and authentic with with all of us so thank you for that and all your amazing work thank you so much for having me 